Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. On the May 25th DevOps Lunch and Learn, we talked about configuration management of deployment pipelines. So how do you take a deployment pipeline and make it productive and effective? And we really got into uh, a lot of the challenges about scaling, rolling deployments, split tests, um, schema migrations, rollbacks, uh, multi-site infrastructure. We dug in on the challenges that are related to making this actually work in a scale production environment. And I think the conversation was fascinating. And we got to a point where you can't just deal with one component here. You actually have to think through how you're building the software because the architecture makes a difference in how you manage the infrastructure and deployment pipelines. Fascinating conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. The question about release process management is, uh, is what do we do before a release gets cut and the automated processes uh, kick in? So, uh, in, in other words, what do we do to um, to support the teams that make the decisions about when to release a a version? how to release it, so to which channels, uh, including like uh, how, do, how do they manage the inventory of channels to release things to? Uh, so we, we, we certainly have automation and, and scripting and several tools for all of the individual components. But uh, given that release management is, <laughs> Uh, a very variable situation. Each company does it different. Like some people do automated releases right away as, as, as soon as, as we do a merge. Uh, other companies uh, use the more legacy approach where it's like timed releases. Uh, you, you've got things in between where, where, you, where you release betas right away and, and then uh, you, re- you have a, like a proper non-beta uh, release on, on a regular basis that, that might just be uh, like a retag beta. Um, I, I was curious about what tooling is available out there, uh, what tooling is popular, and what the gaps are uh, for, for current release uh, management. We, we were just talking about this internally because we've been using Jenkins and there was discussion about switching like to GitHub Actions or, or GitLab or something like that. So it's top of mind for, for, for the Rackend team too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the, there's also in, in my experience, um, a big difference of opinion as to what should be the process. Uh, I personally lean towards fast on uh, mostly automatic uh, releases because it means that we can push a fix out faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I know several project managers who are abhorred by that idea, and they think that uh, a release needs to go through manually curated stages. Uh, uh-huh. in, and I mean, I, I understand their position as well. Um, it took me a while to to basically drink the fast and, and, and <laughs> the, the fast release Kool Aid there. Um, well, so yeah. I I mean, if you're gonna when you talk about a fast release, um, you're talking about a, you know basically updating the binaries, and there's a whole bunch of questions I have from that you let's let's make the assumption it's a multi instance deployment from that perspective mm-hmm. um, I think that that makes things simpler or it, it makes the conversation the harder problem but it makes things useful so in that case you would have coexistence of multiple um, 
multiple versions of a, of the app running. Do so, you do you see a, a migration, like a coexistence, where two versions of a binary can coexist, and there's a migration? How do you how do you see that? Well, that's a, I'm, I'm kind of when you talk about the rapid speak more. I'm, I'm, and there's deployment strategies about how do you go roll a, a new release out, and, and when you talk about multiple instances, are you you assuming there's like multiple data centers, multiple clusters? Is that what you're kind of trying to define? So I have the ability to to do a slow rollout of wherever I want to manage. Is that what you're trying to get to? I, I guess part of what I'm what I'm wondering is you know, what yeah I'm trying to make sure we're all talking about the same thing, um, and then where the where the problems where the challenges are in it. It's not a they're not problems. It's a really good thing to be able to do. Um, right. I mean, there's two, there's two pieces here, right? There's the organizational piece. And it was oddly enough, I'm working with Microsoft these days and I was reading through their Azure governance, which, you know, just models old school enterprise. It, it couldn't be more hands in the, the soup or whatever you want to <laughs> talk about in it. And you, and you realize anyone who follows that methodology is dead and you go to the reverse end of that, which is, you know, the, the, the two pizza team, they control everything into it, right? But I think, you know, the, the question is what's the prerequisite to be able to move to that? And for the most part, it's the ability to, to not only deploy quickly, but it's also to, to recover quickly, to fail fast. Um, and I, you know, one of the things you mean roll, you, roll back, roll back to a previous version. I, I need to be able to roll back quickly, right? And most companies don't have the tooling to do that. Uh, so roll, quick rollback is 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 also very dependent on whether your application is stateful or stateless. That's right. Like like a, a database schema hmm. rollback. Uh, I've <laughs> never seen that done well. well but but there's a technique well, there. It's, you, you know? it's... Yeah, but, go ahead. No, I mean, you, you can't roll back your <laughs> database quickly, right? And so if you're going to basically do something like that, you, you have to basically treat it as immutable and have a hot copy to switch over to. So there's a whole bunch of things that, that go into um, you know this fast release cadence that require tooling to be in place before you can actually do it. You know, and stateful data is always hard. Right. So I just, you know, you talk about there's release methodologies and tooling, right? So when, when you start talking about that, I start thinking about, you know, who, who has to sign off um, rolling a release out, right? Is there a change review board that basically has to look at all these things? We have to have a meeting on it. There has to be representatives from all the various uh, constituents mm -hmm. inside of the business, right? And then we need some way of trying to automate that process into it. Um, and, and what's the corollary to not rolling out releases frequently? It's, it's big bang releases that become extremely difficult to control. Mm -hmm. So it's just like a, there's a, a tooling piece, but I think it's really driven by the organization um, in terms of how you would tool these things together. And I think there's best practices that almost no one follows. Yep. And, and then you, you, you mm -hmm. layer on top of that multi-tenant releases. Um, maintenance yeah. windows that, that need to be honored. Uh, so you, you, may, you might tr trigger your release now, but it may be 24 hours until your release is done. Uh, lead time, uh, so much to, to consider in there. Yeah, you're right. And so you have, you know, we in particular had um, challenges like, you know, you have customers like Docomo and, and Telstra and, you know, they want to control their release cycle and yet you're running this as a SaaS. So, well, I think SaaS, SaaS is its is its own special challenge from a, a versioning perspective. I mean, so, boy, these are all these are all so layered. Um, they are. I mean, yeah, it, it's like if you look at Spinnaker, a lot of people took the tool and said, you know what, this is just too complex. So it can be Argos uh, uh, CD, right? And and for you know Netflix, it was you know probably not sophisticated enough, you know. And then how many of these things to match organizational processes are hand roll? You know, we certainly did. I, I guess when I when I look at this though, there are some incredibly basic disciplines about how you treat API migrations and object storage migrations and things like that. Like we were just mentioning data schema changes. 
Right. One of the things to, that you'd want to do is, is you would want to avoid any schema that change that causes you to have a, you know, a risk of a backwards migration. Like additive changes are, are usually pretty safe, right? And you'd want to write things in a way that if something showed up in your schema that you weren't expecting, ideally the old code wouldn't break. I mean, that, that's where things get really hard to me. But that's where Python is great at breaking because someone added something. It didn't. Yeah. Work. No, so, this is. Yeah, there's multiple layer sets. So, like, one, are you versioning your APIs? Yes. What's your versioning um, backwards compatibility into it uh, based on a release? But the one that's even more fundamental: are you versioning? Are you versioning your data, which which is best practice, but you rarely see it. Yeah. Right, so when I go to import something before I start to introspect on the object, I should know what version I'm actually dealing with and very few people version data. Mm -hmm. Right. I, yeah, and I, that's an interesting process question because we, we, we've talked about it. Um, we chose not to do it because I think we're, we're really assertively saying forward, forward ads, we, we, very rarely deprecate anything, especially out of a data model. Um, yeah, I don't think that's sustainable over time, though. I mean, that's really kind of handcuffing to some extent to, to you know, we're never going to remove something. So I'm going to have a, a bunch of just dead stuff hanging along. Then I start making major architectural changes, which will happen. I mean, it's, you, I think we've all written too much code to know that four or five years after we wrote <laughs> something, we want to rewrite it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's kind of the nature of the beast. Uh, you know, is a strategy of only adding stuff to the data structure? Does that really stand up to the test of time? Or that, you know, I think I said it right. At any rate, um, so there's all kinds of nuances down to the details about how do I write code, how do I version code <clears throat> to be able to deal with these migrations that go into it, right? And, and then there's the organizational things where you've got effectively the the I'm sure they call them quality gates. I just call them roadblocks to getting a deployment app. You know, I mean, th does the CEO have to sign off on a release? Kind of tough when you get a 120,000 yeah. person company. Yeah, well, and you shouldn't, it shouldn't necessarily, sh so how much of the, how much of this do you rely on testing? Right, for, I know for us, and th this was in the release we just did, a huge amount of the work we did was gated on, on test coverage. For the feature set for the release, um, and so you know we've part of part of it for us is maintaining you know we're uh, we're about seventy percent test coverage on on the systems, um, and there's a and and funny thing I mean that's not even cross version checks necessarily it's all inside the version check testing. Um, so how much do you help you roll? Does that help you roll things out? Sorry. Well, I mean. Yes, no. I mean, I, I hate code coverage as a, a metric because um, I think in many cases it's it's a horrible metric. Um, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. My question is is really if, if if you have the ability to basically doing a rolling update and you can do things like AV testing as part of that deployment to verify that the interfaces are working, right? Isn't that tooling more important than the test cases? I mean, what, what do you do, let's take a, a, a non-hypothetical, what do you do when you're hosting the Olympics and you find a bug and, and you've got, you know, whatever you've got, 60 million viewers, right? Yes. And it's the middle of the night and you discover there's a bug. Well, how much testing do you do? You, you, you don't do any, you, you go fix the problem and you deploy it. Well, you know? ideally you, you've Actually, got, you already had a some. serious, <laughs> Sorry, Rocky, go ahead. <laughs> you do do some, but you've, uh, you've triaged your testing down to uh, the basics. Like for, you know, where was the bug found? So if it was a scaling problem, you better do that scaling test. Well, if it, the, yeah, the, so, the, so you have to at least test for uh, to, that it, it works, it can roll out and the problem you're fixing is fixed Plus, you have to take high order uh, 
bugs that have turned up in the past or something like that. There's certain things that you have a collection of things that you test against. Uh, and it, the team itself is the only one who knows. <laughs> it's not, look, I mean, so like we literally, we're, we're hosting the Olympics and another um, data stream was coming in, putting real-time analytics around the video. And they had only provisioned the T1 to, to basically push those video feeds up. Right, and, and to, to replicate that out each of the caches, there was no way there was enough bandwidth to do it. So, so we wrote yeah. some splitting code and we deployed it because the Olympics was down. And there was no testing other than it was down before we started, it was up after we finished. Sure. Yeah. You know, so I'm just saying it, it, it really varies on your ability to how fast you, ideally sure you've got smoke tests, I mean, there's, there's the, the code coverage test. There's a series of smoke tests you want to do. There's chaos injection to inject failures in and make sure they're actually caught as part of the pieces to it. And you normally like to have a, a, a period of time with which that rollout actually happens. And depending upon the scale, that, that may be a day or, or for like a, a major infrastructure piece to it. You know, pretty typically we may deploy every day, but that deployment may not hit all edges for two weeks. Yeah, but yeah, I, with the, the Olympics, it's like the fact that it brought it back up, but I would have just turned off that stream and brought it back up. <laughs> there was nothing, there was, it, was, it was down, <laughs> you know, there, there's no, it was a binary situation. You're either going to basically, you know, play, play a little bit loose and get the Olympics back up or, or yeah. it was yes. you know? and, well, and that was your test well. case, is it up? That was yeah. the best case. <laughs> I, it, it's an interesting. So we're, I mean, we're not deployed. We don't deploy directly to production because you know we do software and then our customers pick that up and run it. But I, you know, there are times when somebody has a bug they need to get fixed. Um, and our Travis processes, because of the testing that we do on them, can take an hour. Right? If Travis is locked up, it could take you know, you know, two or three hours to get a get through a full run of all that infrastructure test. Are you advocating in a case like that, that, you know, you'd still want to bypass? You'd want to be able to say, you know what? So I don't need to test this. Just push no, this. No, what go. you do, what you do mm -hmm. is you do it in parallel. You start the whole process up. You run your testing. If you come across something in the testing, you know that you could just redo it, but you still do the testing at the same time as, as running the new code out there. Uh, so it's after the fact, you know, just you keep your fingers crossed and you do your testing, but you yeah, don't but you let your testing right. stop the deploy. And, and we would actually, you know, it's funny that I think we have, or we, we're, we're going to have a policy in, the, in our employee handbooks around this, which would say, you know, you, the, the normal process is this. If you're making an exception to this process and handing somebody a binary that was compiled outside a process to deploy, then you know there's degrees of who has the authority to do that and for what reasons is the, is the bypass. But if it goes through the normal process, usually we expect it to keep working. Yeah, I mean, we, we had it. <clears throat> At a company, we had platform owners, right? And the platform mm -hmm. owner made the call. There was one source of truth and they, they made the decision to go or no go. And we kept the organization completely flat. So that doesn't mimic almost any other enterprise into it. Um, but we had veto authority over everyone, including the board. <laughs> so if we decided we were deploying, we deployed. If we decided we wanted to do a slow roll, we did a slow roll. It was a risk assessment as to what you were going to do. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the part about some of those pieces do it though is so once again, it's tooling. Do you have the ability to do a limited release? Right, can I deploy to one machine? Can I deploy to a handful of machines? Can I introduce error injections to make sure mm. that things are getting um, caught that should be caught into it? And I, I go back to the point of most companies don't have the tooling to, to do um, controlled releases, it's still a manual process. So you think of infrastructure as code, right? I, I think of deployment as code. No, that's, I, I guess that's how I 
I, I, I make those equivalent from my perspective. It's all, it should all, it should all be a complete, but, but so here's part of the reason why it's so important to do frequent releases, right? And, and we see this like in our, in our release cycles, we'd love to have like a three month release cycle for most releases. Um, but every third release, it seems like there's two or three interlocked features that have to finish together. And those end up causing big releases. And then the challenge is that if somebody who wants feature A can't get, you know, they can't, they can't take feature A until we finish with feature C. And that, that then causes a lot of consternation. The faster release cycles to me, ideally daily, you know, hourly release cycles means that individual changes become small and your confidence that you've made a small fix becomes a lot, you know, that you can actually say, oh yeah, I just fixed this one bug. That's the only thing that changed. Push it out. That, that is me as super important. Yeah. That is assuming that you actually can push out those uh, releases individually. Uh, depending on on how your resource code model is built, uh, you you may have features that depend on other features that are blocked by UAT, in which case you cannot automatically release those. Um, so, so, so release ordering sometimes becomes release ordering is a big deal. Yeah, 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 I was actually talking to my friends at Google and they're having problems with, with distributed dependency management. Um, yeah, as he described it, when you take down an internal service and you lose a bill million, that's one thing. When you take down Chase, that's another thing. Um, but I, I still I still view that as just another, uh, another piece of the tooling, another piece of the architecture. Have we designed it such that we don't have tight dependency between the various services into it? And then have we designed it in such a way that we can deploy um, partially and, and have a strategy for how we roll these things out? And then you know, there's other pieces underneath it, which is just, you know, when you talk about updating 100,000 machines, there's just how long does it actually take to do that? Speaking right. of, of partial releases, <laughs> that, that, that's the other uh, contentious topic of this discussion, like feature flags. Yeah, mm. some some people are in fear of it. Some people think they're the devil, or some people think it's the greatest thing ever because I can A/B test and see which ones work correctly. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it seems like we're in the same boat where, where we like feature flags, but uh, yeah, I, I I understand the side of of, of the developers where, where they feel like, well, why add the feature flag if I'm going to remove them later? But yeah, because you don't want, we want to minimize disruption, right? It, you do, I mean, but some of that is like how you design the app. Some of it is how you, you know, you, you build in incremental changes into the back ends of stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's reminding me, I mean, yeah, the, the, the part we're not even talking about, it, and it probably is not even applicable for some of the applications into it, but it's always been the, the bane of existence at scale is forget about deploying the applications, just deploying new configurations can be painful. Really right? hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so how do you maintain configurations? Um, yeah, once again, imagine you deploying to 30,000 servers, 100,000 servers globally, and a customer wants to put a mission critical change in and it takes you hours to roll out that config change. They want it done in minutes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and you also, there's also the, the, the pushback from, from the developers in that they want to release the feature now, even if it means that you need to push a, backwards non-compile configuration at the same time. And um, sometimes syncing your configuration with your feature is difficult. I mean, yeah, so I think modern infrastructure helps with this, right? I mean, you have the ability to route different requests to different versions of a service now, right? We didn't used to have that, you know, but you can certainly do that now with service meshes to say, we're gonna run both of these concurrently. We're gonna look at the, the request coming in and we'll route it to the appropriate backend. I, either because it's the right API version or because we want to do some mix of test traffic across Oof. it. 
assuming I, that that your your backends, but so that your new version and your old version can run concurrently, yes. Um, getting developers to sometimes develop greenfield applications to to be horizontally scalable can sometimes be uh, like herding cats. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you look at it, this is the fundamental problem, right? Is people don't. <laughs> Uh, you, you've got a whole, you've got a whole generation of engineers that are basically trained on outdated principles, and, and monoliths are simple. Let's write them that way. Let's not break it apart. I, and you got a new generation coming in who, who are not trained at all because <laughs> they, they they come out of a boot camp and and, and then they get hired and that yeah it it. Education is a big problem. Experience and demand so, is a big problem. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back to feature flags and, and the idea that, that people don't like them. It, it's, it's largely developers who end up pushing back on it, huh. in my Why? experience, um, because it's more work for them. Uh, Okay. Right. That that that's the TLDR of it is that uh, they again they they in in order to implement a feature flag in many cases you have to duplicate a, a whole set of classes in, in in your application or or, or interfaces or, or whatever it is depending on, on on the paradigm that you're using and many developers find that grading like. You talk to senior developers, they agree that feature flags would be a good way of implementing it. But when it comes down to it, to actually doing it, uh, a lot of times it's like, oh, we don't have time for this. I see. Yeah, I, I can tell you what we, one of the things that we did that got a little bit of like head scratching at the beginning and has been amazing um, for, for us, which I, I sort of a feature flag, but it's different. Like our back end, it can be really hard to tell if a feature is implemented or not based on just looking at right the version or the API or something like that. And so what we did was we have, um, what do we call them? I think, I think we call them flags. Yeah, they're called feature flags, but they're not feature flags the way people would think of it. So every time we add a new behavior into the system, we add a new flag into the feature flag lists for the API. So like, cause it, like if you just pull an object, you don't know that that object has a, has a behavior in it or not necessarily. And you don't want to add it to the metadata on the objects because that gets yucky. So what we do is there's a way that you can ask the API, do you support this feature? And if it says yes, then you know that that behavior is implemented. And we do that, like it helps you mid-release. You don't have to figure out, oh, I'm version you know 4.3.2 has this, but the other ones don't. So there's a, a canonical way to say, if this feature, if the flag is there, that feature is supported. And then everything else can make decisions based on that feature flag. And that's been really powerful over time. We've got like a hundred now. Which is fine uh, until you start making behavioral changes where feature A at version one behaves in one way and feature A version two is backwards incompatible. And that we would not do, we would leave feature um, one there the way it was or have a switch that says you can still use it this way. And then you have to turn on the new behavior. And there's times when we have old behaviors in the system that, you know, or they're, you know, or they're still there. And oh, that sucks. And you know, eventually you switch the default to off, and then you you know hide it in different ways or things like that. But yeah, that's but that that to me is good design. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like being being able to turn features on and off, being able to to control behavior, and um, being able to have a particular release behave one way or another depending on the configuration. I I hundred percent agree. That's good design. Um, and, and in terms of maintainability, it's also practical design. 
in terms of development and development speed, that's where, where developers and, and sometimes even project managers push back and, and say like, well, you know, just this, this one time, but let's do it this way. And, and then it, it, it becomes a habit. <laughs> so, the challenge is you don't know who's consuming that, that those APIs, right? I mean, if, if you're yeah. entirely internal, then it doesn't, that's, that's refactoring. But once you've put an API out there and a behavior out there, this was, there's, this is, there's an OpenStack story in the middle of all this stuff because OpenStack tried to do micro-versioned APIs to solve this problem, and that was a nightmare. Um, mm. that, was, that was much, much harder, in my opinion. Um, and I, I haven't talked to people who you know, really used it effectively, um, but yeah, I mean, one, if you're building an API that's public, you usually don't have any knowledge of people who have a depend real dependencies <laughs> on the behaviors that you've implemented. You know, um, I, I gotta tell you, I mean, having done several integrations over the last two years, um, you know, some of the, I mean, I wish they would just version the API. I mean, some of the APIs that are out there today, I'm just so horribly written. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they're atrocious. Yes. But that's actually what, what OpenStack did. They versioned the APIs, but because of how many they had and whatnot, I, and I think it works when one of them, one of the versions breaks you and you just go back to, you know, you just sit there and say this version, uh, but it's, it's more, <sighs> and so it is kind of like A-B testing and but we're tossing out the, uh, the, B on this version and the A on that version because they break everything. <laughs> the, the, the API versioning has to come with a contract as well, right? So if I've got an API version that's general release, right, that then, you know, I, I'm telling you, or I'm stating, like, you'll agree to the Kubernetes stuff, right? I, I've got, you know, four versions of backwards compatibility in that API. Right. If, if I'm in beta, I've got something different. If I'm in alpha, I've got something different. So there's there's how dependable can you count this API to be? And then and, and we agree we're not going to break you if you're using this API. Go to the next version of the API. Hey, we may break you. Right. But that that all goes back into you know are you designing and tooling for this problem? And I still you know make the argument most organizations aren't prepared to deal with this. They, they don't put that type of thought into their APIs. And then just, you know, I think, you know, and Klaus said it, it was, it's, you know, the, the subject matter expertise around these things. I'm biting my tongue this week and, and trying not to reply to senior Akamai support engineers with the stupidest statements I've ever heard. And now I'm like <laughs> through three tiers of support engineers and they're asking me questions and, and or, or they're making conclusions better yet that they can't even back up, they haven't even checked, or they're making statements that are just stupid. And it's like, how are you in a senior position? I don't understand. <laughs> Sorry, I bet to. Yeah, no, it's, no, it's that's actually what the very true. Behavior changes. Sorry, Rocky, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with John. And uh, that, and that's something, when it hits you at, a comp at something like with, with Akamai and things like that, now you get used to a company that's that's professional, and even if their APIs are junk, it's still they know that they have these customers depending on this thing that that has all these problems, but they've written everything around it. But if you shuffle the company such that that professionalism or that experience is gone. Man, when when it's something like an Akamai or an Ericsson, even even, you learn to expect certain behavior patterns, and when they behave out of pattern, it just really fucks up your whole day. Pardon my French. <laughs> well, particularly, we got a live event starting in a few days. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but, yeah. yeah, yeah. <sighs> We're, we're doing the European Final Four starting this weekend. And it's like, I just need to get some things. <laughs> and so, you know, but that's it. And, and, and there's other pieces to it to go into. Uh, this is off topic, right? But I mean, 
you know, what, what frustrates me is Akamai prides itself on how many knobs you can tune, right? What, mm -hmm. what pisses me off is I don't have to tune any knobs on CloudFront and it still outperforms them. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, in lots of ways, Akamai su suffers from uh, legacy really badly because they've been around for so long. <laughs> I can tell you right now, they started with the same legacy code base. So it's not a, a legacy code problem. It, it is, um, it is a, a- Corporate management. <laughs> it's about how you write software, right? So, you know, and we've done it differently, but you know, we always, we may have had a thousand buttons underneath we could tune in the CDN, but the goal was always to have the, the most pragmatic configuration the default and, and only tweak or tune those things on edge cases. And, and that will work for 95% of the people out there. Yep. Um, at any rate, that's totally off topic. Um, <laughs> I, I added, uh, a, I actually added API design as a, what makes good API design as a future topic. Because one of the things that's really interesting about the release management pipeline is our definitive statement here is it's also part of schema design and API design and mm -hmm. code compatibility, right? Feature flags and, and how do you handle uh, version version mismatching, right? Yeah. That I right, that that's sort of my takeaway here is that we're saying, hey, yeah, there's a ton of ways to do a release management. We could have a whole other session on this, and I, we should set it up for a part two because. I think quality gates and Git tags and things like that are, are, are real in this. But we couldn't get past the, did you design to patch, to dynamically patch a system? Well, I think that's one. And I, I don't know what's going to, could just be my background, right? Is sure. um, I thought, yeah. So the two, the things that usually bid us first, um, you know, updating a hundred machines is pretty easy. Updating 10,000 to a hundred thousand machines. That's a different dynamic. And we've always had to go build special code to be able to do that <clears throat> in an efficient fashion. And the same thing is true. You know, if you've got multiple customers pushing config changes out, right? How do you handle that? Like most CDNs will say, oh, we just push the global config out once every 30 minutes. Well, what if something's down? You know, and even every 30 minutes when you're updating 100,000 servers and you could potentially be causing routing loops, right? There's just updating configs at scale has always been a problem. We, once again, had to go write whole new systems just to do software distribution, excuse me, config distribution into it. Yeah. That's definitely, and nobody, and that, that's actually a problem in software development from forever. Most people don't work at the uh, global scale. Most people have never had to even think at the country scale or the state scale. And so everything, especially these days is instantaneous. And the bad old days, it was uh, people using server client who thought they, they knew everything and they were, were still totally lost in the mainframe world because how do you have that many disks online at once and you can get data that fast? Whoa. And so there's just <laughs> no knowledge of, and there's, there's no teaching of the large scale and so everybody has to be brought up and everything has to be custom rolled, like John's talking about. You get to a certain point where it's, it's all that, everything that you've done and you can't rely on anybody else. It's actually almost worse than that. Like, so I, I remember when they brought in a, a new VP of engineering from Ericsson and I was the CTO <clears throat> and he wanted to go to three concurrent overlapping sprints where one was two weeks of architecture, two weeks oh, to define no. and two weeks of coding, right? And I'm like looking at a guy kind of going like, we can't do one release correctly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we don't have the tooling set up to do one release 
correctly and you want to go to three overlapping, how do you think that's going to work? And, and they did it anyways. And so understanding even where you're at in the process and making decisions based on that, you know, I, I don't think people have enough understanding of, of what the tooling needs to be, where, where your status is and your maturity of your tool network. Um, and, and, you know, so you've got these reactionary things of, of you know, I'm going to basically correct things this way or that way. And they just have no clue. They, they really have no clue about what the tooling is supposed to look like. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help that, that the tooling itself is an ever-changing landscape. Well, also, um, yeah, the whole thing about one versus three and overlapping projects and stuff. At Amdahl, when I was there, uh, they had to get out of machine every year and a half. But the scale was such, or every year, but the scale was such that it took two years to actually build out a machine. And so they had two teams. And one team figured out how to get it right and turned out wonderful machines and the other team turned out garbage. So every other year, the uh, mainframe coming out that year was garbage. Yeah. And even having a team that knows how to do it, propagating that knowledge to the team that doesn't was extremely difficult and was probably would have taken another five to 10 years to get the teams on the same par because the team that was doing it right kept accelerating faster and the team that was yeah, getting yeah. it wrong. There's an impedance you know, match. You know, Rob, this is yeah. what would be interesting to talk about because it's where I have okay. play on this. <clears throat> you know, I, I think there's a couple of talks in this that, that you know, uh, pop out of my mind and that's particularly what I'm working on right now. Um, which is, you know, we, we always talk about software composability, which is how you basically take elements from different pieces, yes. elements from other, other companies and compose them into an application or compose them into a tool network, right? And part of that forces you to start defining the abstraction that allows you to make that happen, right? And so when you talk about these interdependencies between these projects, right? Uh, making it difficult to roll out. It's like, what can you change such that that is no longer the case, right? How can you define these things that are composable and the interfaces exist between these things in a way that they can be combined flexibly together, right? So I mean, like on, on Unix, mm. what's your what's your unit of interface? It's a byte stream. I can stream something process A to process B, right? And then the other thing that came, uh, so you know, you talk about these systems, right? It'd be nice and tools. I might want to change a tool because I got to a bigger point, but because the inputs and outputs of these tools are not composable, it, it's a forklift upgrade type of thing that goes on. And I, so I create better yeah. composability in the system is one. And then with that, it, it brought about a whole other problem, um, which is, okay, now how do I trust? But I went out and I discovered something that does W3 access logging with eventing. How do I trust that code? Right, and how do I measure that code into it? And so there became uh, a methodology for how do we actually um, certify that this is a component that's usable, right? We can trust this piece of code into it. And then once I've used that piece of code, mm -hmm. <clears throat> one of the things we don't tend to have underneath it that we're working to kind of put into it is metrics, right? So not not how many, what percentage of code coverage do I have? What what um, cognitive complexity do I have in the code? But in production, how many times is this thing fired? How many times is this thing failed? Um, how do we get actual real production insights into how a piece of code performs in production? And, and the inverse of that is when it doesn't perform, what, what is the time to repair, right? How fast can you actually fix that problem into? Um, yeah. And so how do you put metrics underneath these pieces today? So, I mean, there's a tooling problem the design problem, there's a composability problem, there's a metrics problem. Because today, what you've got is conversations like this, and it's all um, anecdotal, right? Your experience, my yep. experience. Rock, you don't have any quantitative way of, of really contrasting these things. And so it becomes an opinion fest. Sure. So that would be, hmm. that would be a fascinating discussion as to uh, I mean, you have to start by getting everybody on the same page as to 
what you need to be looking at and for on like composability and metrics yeah. and things like that. That would be a wonderful, I would love to do something like that, but that's an entire whole. What's well, a stream? It's, it's, so we started this, this conversation is something we're starting in Adobe because we had some very <coughs> similar concepts about how to construct software. Um, <coughs> and I'm trying to put it together and, and formalize it into a specification. Um, yes. Yeah, and in terms of what we refer to as just blocks, you know, digital Legos um, as construction units for these pieces into it. And so we're down to the conversations about, you know, what is, what is a block consume? What does a, a block produce? How do you how do you trust a block that goes into it? What are the life cycle events around these pieces of things? Um, and, and go into those pieces into it. But at the heart of it is the notion that the, the number of people to know how to, I mean, I, I swear to God, one of the best guys ever hired um, he wrote um, Band-Aid, the GCC for Google, but uh, he loves logging. And, and so if you want someone who's going to write a super eloquent logger, he's like the best guy on the planet, right? But I love the person like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, but how do you capture that expertise? And then how do you make that shareable and reusable back to your, your mainframe story, right? Team A and Team B, right? The, the impedance is getting them up the learning curve right and, and getting the communication barriers to where they can even do it versus just making it the path of least resistance which is what i firmly believe in if, if you can make it the simplest way to solve my problem but i can sit here and debate with you or i can go play golf i'll go play golf <laughs> <laughs> you know that this brings to mind that this kind of vision of kind of like an open application model for knowledge transfer it is and and you know, we, we construct it into a few different things. We construct it into the basically the, the, so the segments of code you write over and over and over and over and over again, right? How, how many HTTP resting at the least do I need to write, right? And, and what really pisses me off, as soon as I write one and I go to the next one, I'll add some new capability into it and I gotta go back and fix the old one, right? But th there's nothing to this. It's boilerplate code for the most part, right? It, and yet it gets, replicated over and over and over again through all these different services. And so it doesn't make sense for the world to be that way, right? So, yeah, uh, agreed. And this was, this was what my, one of the things I tried to do the entire time I was in OpenStack was to get them to actually put together a standard for logging. This is what a log message consists of. These parts and these parts allow programmability and traceability. And I couldn't get that across. And part of the thing I realized was none of these guys doing the development had ever worked at a, in a large system, seen a large system in operation, just daily operation. And I was encouraging a take a developer to work day for uh, AT&T and and would, at that point, AT&T was the easiest to get to. Ericsson was harder to find folks. But literally just have them sit with operators for a day to see what the normal process is of just dealing with the things that fly by and fixing them as it goes on. Wow. But there's, there's no right? knowledge base. I mean, one yeah. of the most senior developers in OpenStack had no experience beyond five systems with OpenStack. And, and there is the problems, yeah. And so, and on top of this, this is something that I was trying at Cadence too. You have to do it in some such a way that these senior developers don't think you're talking down to them or negating their experience at the same time. So you have to actually tell them that this is something new and fancy and only for advanced system folks because otherwise there's a thing that I already know that shit. So wow. it's both psychology <sighs> and experience. Mm. And until you got enough people that can sit there and, and tell the story, that's storytelling, until you have enough storytellers in a community to get the folks who haven't experienced it to experience it through stories it's you just you know reinventing the wheel over and over again every time 
somebody comes up and has to deal with a large system for their first time. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's several. So first off, the, the notion that you have enough people to understand that, look, let's just, let's be clear, that will never happen. I know. Right, there's all, not. All you can all you can build is systems <laughs> to reinforce it. But hold, hold on, because we're 10 minutes over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other things I do need to wrap up and do. Uh, yeah. We will we will continue on this on this conversation next week is about roadmaps. So yeah. So the question is how we fill out without getting those people with experience. How we provide enough information that it's actually doable without reinventing everything. So but you're right, John. It's really frustrating. Here, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. But I mean, I, I think um, there's a, there is an answer to that. Um, you know, it, it's a shift in the way we do things. And I'm happy to talk about what we're talking about is social development. It, yes. It, it's how do you leverage that expertise, the subject matter expertise in a way that's scalable. So you'll yes. never have enough of it. The question is how do we leverage what we have? Yes. And it's it's a freaking system <laughs> experiment. And, and to wrap up, because I know Rob, we're long on time. I think when, when I was listening to Rocky talk, all I, all I could think about is sending someone to the operations team. Remember, remember the old TV series, Scared Straight? That's what came to my mind. Ah, uh, oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, guys. I'll talk to you. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Wow, I love when we get into these system-wide conversations. And this was just the tip of the iceberg. We will definitely be going deeper and wider into this type of pipelining conversation. Uh, and I want you to be a part of it. Please join us at the2030.cloud. Be part of the live conversations. And if this is interesting to you and you're listening uh, after the fact, let us know. Uh, we'd love to hear what topics you want to cover. We're starting to build agendas and, and really plan out how we want to spend our time together uh, to direct the topics. So check it out, the2030.cloud, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.